Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Guy Talk is going to be happening. Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk are assembling as we speak. They're not all in place yet, but uh, they will be uh, soon. Uh, so far, it's uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner is on board, but uh, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish will be joining in just a minute or two. And uh, 007 is out today. Usually he's on some mission in Moldova or something, but <laughs> today he's just taking care of his daughter, who uh, apparently gets... Uh, you know, if she wakes up from a nap, can be a little bit loud. So Justin said, I better uh, keep the main thing the main thing and work uh, on, on babysitting today. So um, that's a good thing. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It, it seems like it's maybe just singular guy that talks today. And so I don't know how to filibuster <laughs> until, the, the, until the pastors get in here. Do you have any kind of material for 10 minutes or so? <laughs> well, I, I do. I, there's uh, some interesting comments that came in from uh, last week, uh, for for instance, Judith said that she was listening to Guy Talk, and she noticed there appear to be uh, other listeners like her who don't seem to have a very clear understanding of the Holy Trinity. I think that's something we should uh, explore in detail at some point, whether it's on Guy Talk or we uh, we, we pick another hour some other time and, and talk about it. It is uh, sometimes a very challenging topic. You know, it is. And, and I think it's one of those things you probably have to give the qualifiers up front that if if you or me or Brock or Parrish or anybody that might be teaching or, or talking about the Trinity can suddenly unwind the mystery of it in its entirety so it's completely oh. accessible and understandable, well, we would be the first people within theological history to be able to do that. And and so I think it's <laughs> a, I think it's a, a really interesting thing to puzzle over, and I think they're really good yeah. questions to have. But I think as you and I know and talk about often— that the basis of our relationship with God begins with trust, and then we pursue understanding as an act of worship, but we don't pursue understanding to then decide if we're going to trust. And so I I love the conversations about the Trinity, but when we're living within the structures of of time and space where where one and many can't be happening at the same time in our little cause-and-effect brains, it's really hard to then apply that to Trinitarian life where God is one and Mm -hmm. many all at the same time. I probably have said more than once over 30 years that when I get to heaven, I definitely want to go to the information booth and say, okay, explain the Trinity to me. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> that, you know, and, and in terms of like who gets to decide what agency is at play, meaning that when is it God at work? Does God entrust us to actually do things that affect outcomes? Are we only living within God's already preordained plan? Like those kinds of questions, again, I think they're the kind of questions that are really interesting to talk about. But if they become, but if our ability to understand the entirety of that question becomes the basis for our faith, well, we're probably missing something in that. Hmm. I want to let everyone know you can text your questions over eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Peter, this week uh, P.J. O'Rourke died. He's a humorist that I've enjoyed. And I opened up an old book of his uh, called Modern Manners. It's from 1983. I was looking through it, and this kind of jumped off the page. Um, and it, he said, um, let's uh, have a 
drastic me- method of getting an audience. He said, be one. Listen patiently while other people tell you about themselves. Maybe they'll return the favor. Mm. <laughs> Boy, that is a <clears throat> statement for today, isn't it? In 1983, really you said is. he wrote that? In 83. In 83, yeah. Yeah, he goes on to say, this is risky, however. He said, by the time they get done talking about themselves and are ready to reciprocate, you may be dead from old age. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, uh, that's a great comment. But I think what I so appreciate that about that is there is maybe the, um, the, the fading practice of mutuality in conversations with people where there's an ability to take seriously another person's perspective. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to agree with that perspective, but there really is an honoring of another person that I can, I think, break down a lot of the barriers between us when you simply sit and listen authentically. And, and so our, our job is not to always agree or disagree. Um, it, it really is to listen first. And then if you follow, find yourself on the other side of, of a conversation, it doesn't have to be from this place of, well, at least we didn't talk through this. And, and um, boy, that's a lost art, isn't it, in terms of the ability really to listen is. to one another? He went on to say, Peter, he said, another danger is that if you listen long enough, you may start attending to what's being said. Mm. (laughs) You may start thinking about other people, even sympathizing with them. Wow. He said, you may develop a true empathy for others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing, right? (laughs) Between us, I just, but that's, again, it's so true. I just, it's never more profound in my own life when if I'm telling a story or something going on in my life, if you're willing to take the vulnerable steps of cracking open just even a little bit to another human being, and, and if that human being either authentically laughs with you or authentically sheds tears over you, what that does to the soul uh, uh, of a person when somebody else is sharing that same kind of space Again, we, you know, we live in a culture that really perpetrates self-absorption. It's all about you. It's all about your story. It's all about your, your brand or what's on your phone or, you know, everything is being tailored to the individual. And, and I think that just, boy, it reeks. It, we, we end up really dry in our souls for, for authentic relationships. And it's really hard to trust other people. But that speaks such trust when another person will sit and listen long enough to really maybe suspend their own ideas, their own thoughts. Their, I know for me, Bill, what I struggle with is I can't wait to say the next thing. So I stop listening about 11 seconds in any conversation because <laughs> I can't wait for it to be my turn. But, but when you actually shed tears over another person, golly, it bears witness to something that really is, it, it, it's disarming on so many levels. Yeah, so good. So one of the first questions that came in today, Peter, I think we should chew on this, Sure, is... Uh, question is, when you pray, do you visualize who you are praying to? When you are a visual person, uh, it is hard not to see that picture of Jesus we've all seen. Mm. Yeah, well, I would be curious what you do. And I do. I mean, I guess I do. I don't think about it that much. It's not like I go into prayer thinking I'm going to visualize the object of my prayer that uh, for that being Jesus. But I think it kind of just happens. I think there's a sense that... Um, I, I want to know that there's an actual interchange going on relationally between God and me uh, in that. So I think I do. I don't know about you. And we can ask the Toms. They're finally just wandering in the studio here. So Yeah, well, I'm, I'm losing interest in the Toms because yeah. they're late, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well, once again, yeah. I mean, we're, we're not talking about sustained conversation with the Toms like right. this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Peter, I think when I go to prayer, I often uh, go to, to Calvary and I, mm. I go to the foot of the cross and I think of the description of Jesus being uh, beaten and bloodied beyond recognition 
to to the point where he almost didn't look human. And I think, okay, there's the sacrificial love. This is where I'm going to take my prayer request to this foot of this cross, to take my sins and ask for forgiveness. That That is a picture for me that I, I regularly go to because I want to every day visit the cross in my mind and in my heart. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good practice, um, Bill, to, to visualize that piece of it because um, part of the heart of the gospel, and I don't know that we talk about it or think about it as clearly as sometimes we could or should, but it's... It's the idea that what Jesus, among the many things that happened in that that Friday to Sunday event, was that Jesus actually broke the curse of sin and death in this world, the the curse that reigned among the beloved, the image bearers, the that which was enslaving them and killing them, and and that he was willing to then on that Friday and in, in what you just described go empty himself of his divinity to the point that he could become subject to the power of sin and death himself and all of its physical, emotional, and spiritual brutality. Um, and then walk through those waters of death for the sole purpose uh, of knowing that he was the only one that could walk into those waters of death and then come out the other side and break its power. And so this is why we sing the songs that we do, you know, around the idea of death could not hold you, the veil tore before you, you silence the boast of sin and grave. And so you have no rival and no equal. And, and uh, mm. for you, all all things are under your feet in, in this moment. And so um, him will, to, to pray in that way where you're visualizing the absurd love that drove him to the brutality of the cross on every level, thus to conquer the power of sin and death on the behalf of the beloved. I don't think we can do that kind of thing enough. Yeah. Excellent point. Let's take questions. 877-933-2484. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with the full power panel in place. Uh, minus 007. Be right back. Sorry, my fault. show if you just joined us it is guy talk or guys who talk the power panel is in place pastors tom brock tom parish and peter kapsner gentlemen nice to have you all here good to be here bill good to be here sorry yeah. i was late my fault that's okay that's okay so here's a great question that, that has come in this is from mark chapter 13 uh, verse 32 jesus said no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father in other places father son and holy spirit are one why would jesus not know Thank you. I don't think this is as difficult a question as people think. Jesus said that when he was still walking as a man on earth. Mm -hmm. And so in his earthly form, even though he was God, he was truly man, he didn't have the inside information. But once he rose from the dead, being God, he knows everything. So I don't see that as an issue at all, but I understand how you can come to that conclusion. But it's you got to look at the time frame. And this is Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself, became human. So when Jesus was on earth, if you remember, he's walking through the crowd, and he turns around and says, "Who touched me?" The disciples says, "What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you." Well, I felt power go forth from me, and then this woman said, "I'm the one that that got healed." And so Jesus didn't know certain things because he limited himself. Yeah, I mean Jesus at age two, couldn't do trigonometry. Because it says in Luke 2, he grew in wisdom and he did. stature. He did. There you go. Grew in wisdom and favor. 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's probably right. Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, the trigonometry thing got kind of sensitive for me. <laughs> 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 a little too close to home, was it, Bill? Yeah, I understand. Yeah, that one that one stung a little. Ah, <laughs> uh, we're sorry. All right. Uh, last week, Peter and I were talking after the show. I think maybe it was a couple of days ago, Peter. We were talking about the whole uh, paranormal and supernatural and and spirit uh, world and how we really have to figure out a way to tackle this and maybe do it over a series. Mm -hmm. Because I sometimes think when we mention things like this in Guide Talk, it sets off a firestorm and we don't handle it as well as we could or should. So I always want to say we'll definitely do better. And we apologize if we started something up that we couldn't uh, put all the uh, periods on and, and cross all the T's. But uh, a message came in that last week there was a statement, uh, I think from one of the Toms, saying that nowhere in the Bible is there communication with the dead. How do you handle First Samuel 28, where Saul talks with Samuel after he died? And the person was very nice. Thank you guys so much for all that you do. I really appreciate it. So that's very nice. Oh, the Witch of Endor. Yeah, uh, it is the Witch of Endor. Yeah. I, think, I think we say you're not supposed to communicate with the dead. We're forbidden to try to contact dead Uncle Joe through a seance. Not that it didn't happen, because it did happen at the Witch of Endor. Now, the question is, in First Samuel there, or is it second, the, the witch conjures up Samuel from the dead so Saul can consult with him, because Saul's afraid of the battle. And some Christians think that means it wasn't really Samuel. She was conjuring him up. This was a, a shell game. But you read it, it really looks like God allowed Samuel to, to come back from the dead to tell Saul, you're going to be dead tomorrow with me. Uh, and so I think that God kind of made an exception, but there is one place where God allowed a communication with the dead. That's well, a really smart answer, Tom Brock. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got the story, too, in Luke 16, where Jesus tells the parable about Abraham with Lazarus. And, you know, Lazarus is basically saying to him, you know, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, uh, or this man who was tormented, and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the cool water. And Jesus says, hey, one can't cross over to the other. Mm -hmm. So what I've always tried to do in my Bible study is when I look at the Scriptures, I look at the Old Testament, and what's said there I believe is absolutely true. I don't have any problem. But when I get to the New Testament and I see what Jesus does with this or what statements he makes, for me that's a clarification. And that from that point on, that becomes my fixture of understanding the truth because Jesus' word is the absolute truth over everything mm -hmm. else, even though all Scripture is the truth. Jesus is now clarifying, hey, this doesn't happen. Don't do this. You know, don't try to conjure up the dead. I've worked with people that have attempted to conjure up the dead, and unfortunately all they conjured up was a demon, mm -hmm. and they wound up in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's Satan, so sad to Satan see. Satan can appear as an angel of light yes, or as your grandmother mm -hmm. from, from beyond the tomb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we when you have the opportunity to explore these really tricky questions, one of the questions that you have to ask, we were just talking about it in class with my students today as we're in ethics class and just addressing a really hard question, stem cell research and in vitro fertilization. And there's so many things that just have many layers of complexity to them, they right? So, so it becomes what is, what is the method by which you can approach these things to come to some measure of reliable answer? And this question of the paranormal and ghost is not something that I've really spent much time with in my life other than just on the periphery or the edge of, right? And so one of, one of the methods and <clears throat> what I'm going to try to do over these next six to nine months or so, I suspect is what it would take is, is to explore three different or maybe even four different lenses um, by which to try to understand the issue. The first lens is scripture. What does scripture yes. say about this? It's the place of primacy. I, I have the scriptures as an authoritative place in my life. 
and trying to understand any of the witness within them. And the passages that you guys just referenced would be part of that. So we look at something through the lens of Scripture, um, then look secondarily uh, through the lens of, of historic religious traditions, both within Christianity, and I give that primary, but there's so many streams and rivers and tributaries within Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, gosh, there's 500 or so denominations. There's the entire Catholic witness of the church. There's Eastern Orthodoxy. There's just so many ways of exploring these things. Um, look a bit at the human experience and look at some of the, the sciences. And again, I don't give those as much credibility as, as scripture, but that's sort of the method by which to look at them. And one of the things I really puzzle over, and this is what I'm curious about, is when you talk to people how often they claim to have some kind of experience with the paranormal. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with religious traditions globally that have rules about contacting the ancestors like, and all that. And I'm not advocating at all for mm-hmm. any of this stuff. I genuinely am not. I'm just wondering about what are the questions that we have to ask if we want to come to a reliable witness about this. And I came across a story this last week, the famous Bible translator, I think J.B. Phillips is his name, mm-hmm. J.B. Yeah, Phillips. Sure tells a story, and this is, again, we, we read his translations of the scriptures, and he tells a story of coming home one day, and a, a recently passed C.S. Lewis was sitting in the chair and gave some, some really helpful encouragement to J.B. Phillips. So what do I do with that story? How do I explain that story? I'm not advocating for this. I genuinely am not. But, Bill, I think you made such a good point. I think a lot of people have a lot of questions about this specific kind of topic, and I think there's a lot, I mean, Tom, you said it, they conjured up demons in, in approaching this. So this is, a, this is a pretty important topic, I think, to get our head around in a really responsible kind of way. You know, I stayed away from, in the early years of my ministry. I didn't know much about this whole realm. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't get into seminary, didn't talk about it. And then over the last uh, 25 years or so, I kept getting people coming to my church who were telling me that they were hearing voices or that you know, they couldn't sleep at night or they were having these horrible dreams. And I would say to them, you know, and they come in midweek. I never met these people. I said, why did you come to see me? And I will tell you honestly, uh, over and over and over, they would say to me, I heard a voice in my car mm. that said, go in and talk to this pastor. And they actually came in and sat down and talked with me. And it turned out in their case, quite a few of them were witches and warlocks who received freedom and ultimately came to Christ. And others were just simply... uh under the pressure of these voices and that, and we had to do a lot of prayer and a lot of looking at Scripture to help them get free. Yeah, and see, those are scary kinds of stories in my mind. It goes back to what you were talking about in the Scriptures. It says, don't try to contact the dead. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I have that I currently don't have the answer to, is that being said because you can't contact the dead or it's because you don't want to even enter into that realm? I think it's the second. Really? uh, Actually, it's it's both. Yeah, interesting. I don't think you can contact. You know, I... I, uh, when I was 13, sitting in my Lutheran confirmation class, the senior, the pastor of our church taught us there are no such thing as demons. Mm. They, it was epilepsy. They didn't know in, in what categories to put it back then, so they called it a demon. That was when I was 13. When I was 19, I won't go into the whole story, I was in a cabin in the middle of the woods and had a, a demonic thing happen to me, mm. and it made me think, well... Maybe demons are demons and not epilepsy. And, you know, that, that explanation doesn't work. How come the epileptics know who Jesus is when nobody else does? Yeah, you question. know, yeah. so just we need to take the scriptures real seriously on this stuff. I don't know what to do with your C.S. Lewis story. I don't either. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah. Um, but, you know, only the Lord knows. I'm going to look into that one. That yeah. one really I want to know more about. Very interesting. So I've sort of had my antenna up ever since Peter and I had that conversation. So I was in Matthew 14 the other day, and I came across the verse where 
in 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, Mm. they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And I thought, well, where did they get the idea of the word ghost? Why didn't they say, oh, look, a hologram or look, uh, you know, why did they call it a ghost? Have they had previous encounters with what they have called ghosts? And I don't I don't know. I think so. And uh, and uh, Bill, a second uh, example, Jesus is risen from the dead and he says, come touch and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that mm. I have. And when Jesus says that word ghost, does he acknowledge that there is such a thing? Or is he acknowledging that there's a concept out there called ghost? I'm not a ghost. I've really physically risen from the dead. (laughs) Yeah. The the Greek word for what it's worth is phantasma. And we get the word, uh, you know, phenomenon out of that. So I don't know that they were saying ghost in the way that we have grown up with Casper the ghost or something like that. But it's more of a spirit. You know, where's the spirit come from? Or what is this vision that we're seeing? Why is this out here? And I think if we put it back in that context, it makes a little more sense. If I can just simplify mm-hmm. this all. Mm-hmm. God, good, devil, bad. <laughs> that's, a, that's all you need that's, that's, that's pretty clear. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody else yeah. feel that's like... as like deep it. as I get. Yeah, I think we should all nominate Tom Parrish to have to do the research for the next nine yes, months okay. or so and then put his credibility <laughs> on the line when he comes back <laughs> uh, from the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah, indeed. John on the, John on the text line said, uh, what are we trying to learn from dead people that God is not better at answering? Good point. Good great line. question. Good point. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. My... Greek Bible professor used J.B. Phillips' translation a lot because he said it was the closest to the Greek text that there is. I'd love to read from it. Um, okay, that's... Yeah, I mean, he was, the, a, he was a very well-regarded uh, figure from the, from the British Isles that, that clearly um, was not somebody who maybe... I mean, we do hear stories of pastors that just kind of invoke ghosts and demons and angels and everything, right? And, and they lose credibility quick, pretty quickly. So that, that was the one story that just currently has my attention in terms of somebody who seems to have a historic measure of credibility. And I think the story goes on to say that he shared that story with a bishop or a priest locally and said, well, this isn't unusual. This sort of thing happens all the time. And so I just, again, these are things when you begin to explore some of the questions of our faith that are really worth exploring. We, we, I think we could use some more robust conversation about some but of these sorts of things. If, if I can tell a story that I told real quick. Yeah. Uh, years ago, I'm in my bedroom. I sit up. Here's my dead sister floating outside the window. And I said, Ruthann, is Jesus coming soon? Oh, yes, Jesus is coming very soon. And then she started saying this really weird, unbiblical stuff Mm. and then floated away. And I thought, that was a $3 bill. And, and, you know, and I still don't know if I was awake or asleep when that happened. Yeah. But, uh, you know. Yeah. So just be and careful. You, Very careful. Yep. And what everything. did you have for dinner that night? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more guide talk or guys who talk. Let me know what your questions are. There's some great ones coming in. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We call this segment Guide Talk. If you just joined us, you can ask the pastor any question you have. Maybe you have been embarrassed, embarrassed to ask your own pastor a question. You can fire away with these guys. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back.
Welcome back to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. The great questions coming in today. Thank you so much for sending the questions over. We'll have to have gift card day some one of these one of these Thursdays where we give out gift cards for these great questions. I don't know if there'll be anything on the gift cards, but it would still be fun to give them out. <laughs> what a great gesture though. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I know. I mean it's the thought that counts. <laughs> indeed, the thought indeed. that counts. Wow. So here's here's a great question. I believe I've heard it said that God won't tempt people. See first Corinthians ten thirteen. But in the Lord's Prayer there is the verse which can be spoken as lead us not into temptation which I've heard replaced with save us from the time of trial in our home church. So who is doing the tempting and have you heard of this alternative? If you read the King James version in the old Testament, when God was about to uh, see if Abraham would sacrifice Isaac, it says, quote, now God did tempt Abraham, meaning test. And that's, that's kind of the problem. The word, the word for temptation can be translated test or temptation. And I think there's I think the way to do this is say, yes, God tests us for the sake of our, our strength our strengthening, but he never tempts us in order to get us to sin. I think that's the way to put it. Bill, did you say I want to make sure I have this right. First Corinthians ten and you said verse yeah, thirteen? T- Yes. Because I'm looking at it here, and it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, will also provide a way of escape. So it's not saying the Lord is creating the temptation. It's just that when the temptation comes, he wants to give you the ability to overcome it. And James chapter 1, Let no man say yep. when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For right. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself dumbs no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and desire, etc., etc., etc. So, that's right. Yeah, I've heard of that uh, the Lord's Prayer too interpreted something akin to the idea of preserve me from being tempted, meaning yes. that there, it's an acknowledgement of weakness. Basically, deliver me from the evil one, uh, preserve me from temptation. I recognize that in my flesh I'm weak, so just preserve me from that temptation. And, you, you know, people say, and they think they're quoting the Bible, God never gives you more than you can handle. Mm-hmm. There's no Bible verse except for what Tom just read. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure. So, uh, in, on, in one sense, God gives us things that we can't handle all the time so that we'll trust in him. But in that area of temptation, it says he won't allow you to... He, God will always provide the way of escape. <laughs> Whether yeah. you take it or not, it's another mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. In Luke 22, verses 35 to 38, Jesus sent the disciples out without food, money. But now he says they should pack a bag and bring a sword. What changed? Hmm. I think he, I, he gave those special instructions to the 70 as they were going out for that time period. Uh, but then at the end, things have changed, and it's, it's okay now to carry a thermos. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think I think too. I, when we when we tried to read some of these narr- narratives within the Gospels or some of the writings of Paul in in the letters that he wrote, it's understandably it's reasonable to think that gosh, God must be making some meta theological statements about the way things are true all the time. But I think if we lived back in that day, it was not unlike anything that we do today. It's a, just different circumstances mm-hmm. require different things. And right. so, you know, we to not look at the Bible as a series of theological axioms 
as opposed to stories in which the kingdom is exploding. And we yeah. understand the reality of the kingdom with, uh, of what it is within those stories is different than just saying somebody crammed together a bunch of fortune yeah. cookies of faith or something like that. We, we need to be careful how we argue because some, I'm, I'm a Lutheran, but some people, well, you know, Jesus was baptized at age 30. Therefore, you need to wait till the age 30. Okay, Jesus was also baptized in the Jordan. Do I have to go to the Jordan yeah, River exactly. to get baptized? That's a great yeah. example. Yeah. And the far side of the Jordan. Yeah, there that's you. where he was baptized. Okay. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting mm-hmm. because when we look at Scripture, and this is something I had to learn a long time ago, my background is in television and film and photography. I love that stuff. When we look at the Bible, I think we think it's a motion picture. So that one thing just naturally flows over mm, one mm-hmm. statement to the next and the next. But if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, they selected certain things to put in their text. And so I look at it this way. It's like having a giant, you know, uh, board in your home, cork board, and you're putting up snapshots. And so each snapshot, in one sense, stands alone, although it does counteract with the other ones. But you don't get this smooth flow all mm-hmm. the time. And that when you say, well, why does this one say this one over here and this one over here? You're right. It's context. They're facing a different situation. They're dealing with something different, and it's the snapshot. I think that's such an important point because the the gospel writers in particular were not setting back to try to write a biography about the life of Jesus in chronological flow. They they were doing what was called redaction or editing the various parts of Jesus's life, his teaching, his ministry, the events that he did. They were editing them in a way to bring them together to teach a theological message about this dimension of Jesus's life and ministry. And so they're not. Sometimes we get troubled or tripped over again, understandably, over maybe something that seems chronologically different from one gospel to the other, mm-hmm. but they're not attempting to write that. They're, trying to, they're attempting to write theology of kingdom based on this dimension of Jesus's life. So they're writing through different prisms, all true stories, but that's why they're shaped differently is it's not meant to be a biography. It's a different kind of narrative. Well, I don't want to sound confusing, but I've had members actually say, so which one is right, Matthew or Luke? Right, right. And I say, yes, yeah, mm-hmm, they exactly. both are. <laughs> it's just read them in their context. Yep. Mm-hmm. Genuflecting or bowing to Christ on the cross, is that considered idolatry or worshiping a man-made graven image? Or the crucifix. Okay. Okay, if I can just for a minute say what the Protestant uh, criticism is of Catholicism, and I I don't share this, but... Catholics, you go into a Catholic church and Jesus is on the cross. Yeah. Don't they know he rose from the dead? I don't, I don't worship a dead Savior. I, and I think that is not right because I have a crucifix in my house and Jesus is on the cross. Does that mean I think he's still on the cross? No, I, of course he rose from the dead. But it's a reminder mm-hmm. of what he did yeah. for me on the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if someone is bowing to a, a, a crucifix, I, I don't think there's, they're worshiping that. They're acknowledging what he did for us. That's my opinion. Well, here's the mm-hmm. scary part. If uh, Indiana Jones was correct and they discovered the, <laughs> you know, the Covenant Ark. Yes. And we put it up in the museum. There would be people that would come down and bow in front of it, yeah. having nothing to do with the God of the Old Testament, having nothing to do with Jesus, having nothing to do with the covenant. But there's power here and we want oh, to be near yeah. the power. I think there are always people that will bow to the crucifix because... To them, if they don't, it's kind of like, I didn't tap the door twice when I went in. i got to be really careful. But if you go in and your attitude is, I'm really bowing before Jesus for Mm -hmm. what he's done. This is a symbol that reminds me. Mm -hmm. I don't see any issue with that at Mm -hmm. all. 
Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. either. We were talking earlier at the top of the hour about what do you visualize when you pray, and and uh, one visualization can be Calvary. It can be what of Jesus course. did on the cross. How, so how is that different to imagine these things in your mind as right. you're maybe bowing your knee in prayer yep. versus the tangible physical symbol of it within the church that you genuflect in reverence before it? I, you know, it's I, not a magic wand like I, you were no. saying, Parish, but there can be a real spirit of reverence around it. I was just reading today on the different ecumenical councils in the history of the church. One of them was on icons. Is it okay to have a picture of Jesus? a picture of St. Joseph, etc. And that was a big dividing factor in the church. And the Eastern Church was more into it, and the Western Church wasn't. And that was one of the issues that divided the church in what? Was that 800 AD, something like yeah. that? Do you know what the issue was about why there was such a, a movement to remove all icons from the church? Like, I know that that happened, but many of our Protestant churches that we might live in today are still stripped down, almost functional warehouses mm-hmm. that have been stripped of anything visual. Was there the worry of worshiping some I of think, the icons? I Is that, that kind of what was, yeah. was going on in I that I think time? that was. Yeah. And then, but the, the response was, well, we believe God became a f- human being flesh. You know, the, the Muslims don't have any images, mm. but Christians tend to have pictures in their church. I mean, this is what I, you go to Europe and you go to these 1,000 year old uh, cathedrals. They got pictures all over the place because people couldn't read. So when they went to church, they they looked at the stained glass windows. That was the Bible stories Mm. for back then. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you've got a barber's uh, pole out front of a barbershop because there was a time when there were people that were illiterate. They couldn't read the word barber, so they had yep. symbols that would be associated with what uh, function that was going on inside the store. Do you remember Indeed. Peter and Bill and Tom Brock? Remember when we needed a barber? <laughs> remember those days? Yeah, with great affection, Tom <laughs> yes. Brock. With great affection. That is ancient history that was, there. Okay, yeah. That's money I used to enjoy spending. <laughs> yeah, my barber's yeah. up on a stained glass window in my house just to remind me. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, here's a question. A few days ago when I was reading Acts, they killed James. Was that uh, one of the sons of Zebedee? And if so, was the John, his brother, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the short epistles? And if so... When you read about John in the Gospels, he seems so gentle and loving, not a son of thunder. Well, that's what he became. <laughs> it's not necessarily where he started. Yeah, that's right. And and that's the thing we have to understand. When you, and this is the goal for every Christian life, it doesn't matter how you come to Jesus in terms of whether you're a loudmouth, whether you're sarcastic or whatever else. It's what you do after you meet him. And how he transforms you and changes your character so you become the person who reflects Jesus the most. Now, whether this James was the same one as John, the Sons of Thunder, or whether they're brothers or that, there's not enough clarity in the Scriptures to quite frankly tell us that. In church history, though, or in church tradition, there's all kind of strata that talk about this. And you've got some that say, absolutely it was, and you've got others that say, nope, wasn't at all. Hard to tell. I wish we had something definitive to say mm. that. I'm just thankful that he was willing to go to his death standing up for the gospel. Mm-hmm. That'd be an interesting study, though. I think I, I, I would struggle to name all 12 disciples right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you would, like Bartholomew's in there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have no idea what happened to him. So mm-hmm. it would be a pretty interesting study to wonder mm-hmm. about what happened with all the disciples along mm-hmm. the way. Would I know do? all of them were killed for their faith or exiled for, in the case of John, John right? Except so John. I think that's yeah. very instructive about what it means to well, follow we don't, Jesus. Again, we don't know for sure that's true. That's very early church history. Indeed. So I think it's it's okay to say that as long as you get the caveat that we're not 100% sure. Yeah. Don't know. And 
And I think we should make a note today that Peter is the only person on Guy Talk who can't name all of the <laughs> <laughs> we got to go to a break, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, here's a question. I have a friend who feels it is his job to call out Christians on what he considers their sins. And I don't even think this guy is a Christian. He uh, doesn't attend church or Bible study or anything. Um, please advise. Well, he's trying to keep his Christian friends as far away from his sins as he can. <laughs> and one of the best ways to do that, I learned a long time ago in debate, as I used to coach debate and speech, whoever sets the premise we're almost in the first statement wins the debate. Mm. The simple reason is everybody's got to react to what's been said then and work around that. So if I start the debate and I say to Peter, hey, Peter, I know you really love this Jesus and you try to walk faithfully and all this and that, you know, but I think you're a hypocrite, you know, <laughs> and you don't really follow through well. What is Peter going to do? Well, everybody wants to defend Peter. Guess what they're not doing to me? Why are you asking that question? What is the hypocrisy in your life that you don't want to face? Hmm. Jesus said, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So we are to rebuke one another, but we are to do it in love, you know, speak the truth, not with a sledgehammer, but in love. But this person sounds like he's got an issue. If he's not going to church, he's not in fellowship, but he's pointing on other people's sins. He's got an issue. Yeah, I mean, if it's coming from a place of sort of glee and yeah. gotcha and yeah. all that, that's just something really unhealthy. My, I mean, I don't know how to advise for sure in any given situation, but that feels like just press the ignore button. I, my pet peeve, I get people that write because of our TV show, and Pastor Brock, I don't go to church anymore because the church is in darkness, and I understand the Bible properly. Yeah. And then you listen to what they believe in the email. I mean, if you cut yourself off from the church because only you understand the Bible properly, you get weird in your theology. Yeah, you totally do. I am still learning from the 80 and 90-year-old men and women who have never gone to seminary, who Amen. barely had an education, but they love their Bible. Amen. And they come up with some of the most profound statements after the service or when I'm preaching that just absolutely makes me think like I've never thought before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, you're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Great questions coming in today. Thank you so much for sending them over. We have time for a couple of more. You can text them to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. The power panel is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. After a short break, we'll be back with lots more uh, uh, time to take your questions. Be right back. Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, they all do it pretty well, too, I might add. <laughs> Pastors Tom Brock, uh, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the power panel today. All right, in light of Jesus' response to Peter's question about how often we must forgive and realizing how much we as believers have been forgiven, what is our responsibility to forgive someone who does not ask for forgiveness? Are we really able to do so? I understand not seeking vengeance. I understand not holding a grudge. It's a great question, and I think people struggle with this one all the time. Uh, I've had many people come in and say, my dad was not a good man, or my dad did this to me, and he died and never repented for what he did. You know, I'm haunted by that. What can I do? 
Well, those are the kind of circumstances, as well as all of life, that if you don't put Jesus in the center of everything you do, if you don't put his sacrifice for you as the reason to forgive, you're in real trouble. And I've often uh, told people, literally, in those circumstances, I, I had a woman whose father was quite abusive, and he was now dead. And I said, she said, what can I do? I said, you have, you know, I said, can you still see your dad in your mind? Oh, well, of course I can. I see him every day. Well, you've got to now put Jesus between you and your dad. And it's Jesus whose hands are extended to you. It's him saying, forgive for my sake, not for your dad's sake. I'll deal with your dad. But for my sake, forgive. And that's where the power comes from. And mm-hmm. I have to do that because there's no way. There are people that have in the ministry that have hurt me in ways and my family that from a human point of view, I, it'd be almost impossible to recover from. But because of what Jesus has done, Yes, do I still hurt sometimes, but I can walk in that forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it just, you know, seven times 70, right? This is not some literal in, invitation to say once you get done forgiving somebody 490 times, you're good to go. And uh, it, there's, a, there's a symbol in that of, of a life of a heart of perpetual forgiveness that you lead with forgiveness. Now, whether to what extent that can occur when the object of your forgiveness isn't asking for it or is no longer available for that kind of forgiveness, I, I think... Um, it doesn't change the fact that we, we have a general posture of forgiveness with which we li- uh, lead. And it doesn't mean we're willing to be run over. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for yourself. But it's pretty clear that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so as soon as you start cultivating some kind of alternative spirit, which means that I am going to withhold, I am going to bear a grudge, I am going to wait. And the, like there, Jesus forgave those people while he was being unjustly killed mm-hmm. on the cross. Like mm-hmm. he did not actually belong on the cross. And in those moments, what did he extend uh, there's an otherworldly forgiveness. And I think, Parrish, to your point, I've been thinking lately about the idea, when when do our tears actually get wiped away? Like, biblically, when do they get wiped away? And, and, and I think we really honestly and understandably have the impulse to want to see those tears wiped away on the side of heaven. But the scriptures is really clear. The tears will not be wiped away until earth and heaven become one. And, and, and it's all restored at the great coming re- reconciliation and revelation. And so we are people of sorrows on some level. Jesus is a man of sorrows. And and so um, he, he gives us the strength to bear up under the pain of this life. Yeah. But I don't know that the pain of this life will be fully resolved uh, until the other side, when the tears will finally, in ways that I fully don't understand, I don't know how he's going to wipe away the tears of the legitimate pain that people have walked in. The horrors that are perpetrated upon people in this present darkness are real and profound, but we have to trust the promise that the tears will be wiped away someday. It just might not happen in this life. I read a little booklet by Bill Bright when I was about 21 called How to Love by Faith. And it gave me a principle that I have used ever since. We're commanded to love our enemies, but I can't love my enemy. <laughs> well, it says in First John, if we pray according to God's will, he hears us. So, uh, so here's a person I'm, I, I'm uh, angry at. Lord, I can't forgive this person, but in your strength and power, because you've commanded it, and you also promised to give us the grace to do whatever you command, I claim this now, I forgive Mrs. So-and-so for what she just did to me. Mm-hmm. I do that regularly. When people bug me in prayer, I forgive them before the Lord. That doesn't mean I don't go rah, rah, rah in my mind five minutes <laughs> later about them, but in, in prayer before the Lord, I have forgiven them. Sometimes your emotions will never catch up to that. Yeah. But we're commanded to do it. We do it. We claim the promise, and then we move on. And if we get stuck again, you do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great answers. Um, this is an interesting one. I've been told that anointing the windows and doors, even mirrors of your home with oil, 
will prevent demonic attacks within the home. What is your opinion on this? Uh, not my experience. <laughs> I know people have done that, and they still wind up with some serious, serious problems because the doorway for the demonic is not your doorway with oil on it. It is your heart and the way you think and what you invite into your life, either in the occult or whether it is in witchcraft or wanting power or vengeance over someone. You open up a door, mm-hmm. and that's where the real danger is. So I would say to the question, anoint your heart with the blood of Jesus Christ that's where you need to be anointed. Quit worrying about the doorposts. Mm. See, this is why you need to do the study of the paranormal yeah, and come back to us in nine months. I think I'm really excited for this, <laughs> Paris. I mean, Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. I just get a little nervous. I mean, somebody, I, I was going to go on a trip once, and somebody said, well, can I you know, anoint you with oil for the trip? I'm saying it. Where does it talk in the Bible about anointing people with oil for a trip? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. You anoint people with oil for sickness, James 5, or they would anoint people with oil like to become a king or something in the Old Testament. I And... Is, did it, you know, would it hurt me to have them anoint me with oil before I go on a trip? I guess not, but I kind of shied away from it. Mm-hmm. And just if it's not a biblical precedent, uh, let's not make up things about putting oil on doors in order to keep the devil away. I, I don't know any verse that says that. What about, of course, anointing with oil for healing in the name of the Lord? Yep. That's commanded. James 5. Yep. Yeah, that's commanded, yeah, in James 5, yeah. All right, what does it mean uh, when stated, do not be yoked to an unbeliever? Yeah, to wear a yoke in that context of that time, because Jesus says things to like, take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my, my, my ways are light. To, to take a yoke upon you means that it, it's a way of understanding life. In Jesus's case, it was take his teachings upon you. But to be yoked means that it is a way that governs your life and how you walk forward. And so if you're unequally yoked with someone, it means they're wearing a different kind of yoke. And so you have to picture two oxen together mm-hmm. that if they're wearing a different kind of yoke, uh, t- uh, tugging and tearing at each other, you, you can't walk the same direction. So as a couple in marriage, you're meant to be uh, evenly yoked together so that you're walking under the same teachings, under the same narrative of life, walking the same direction together. And you can't do that when one person has surrendered their life to Jesus and the other person hasn't. You, you're, you're living in competing interests at that point, and so the yokes are different that you're wearing. Oh, you're really playing by a different tune. You really are. Uh, I was uh, late at night when I'm done reading and I'm tired. Once in a while, I'll turn on YouTube and go to an old science fiction movie from the 50s. But I was looking the other night at synchronized dancing. And there, there is a group of people that do the synchronized dancing that's really amazing. And they use a lot of modern tunes like the Bee Gees or Staying Alive. I have never seen people be so coordinated together. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely phenomenal. Now, you put that on and then you put on somebody else's to a different tune and they're trying to dance together. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus is saying. We want to be united. The Bible is saying we want to be united so we have the same mind, the same heart, the same direction. And we may have different ways of you know, yeah. making it all work. But we're still in harmony. And mm-hmm. that, that verse says, do not be mismated with unbelievers. So if there's anybody listening to this show and you're thinking of marrying somebody that you're, that you're a believer and he or she is not, don't do it. Don't yeah, do and I it. think there's a real temptation, isn't there, to, because we so long for a relationship oh, and, we wa- and we want to be chosen and we want to then maybe get into a married relationship. And I think there's a temptation people enter into that says, well... I think he or she is going to change ultimately. Mm-hmm. Like we'll get married and we'll sort those things out. And I'll and convert them later. And that just, I, I don't know too many stories. I mean, I know it does happen and I'm yeah. sure there's stories sure. that are, but that, that is yeah. fraught with peril. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I prayed about it and it, it really seems okay. Well, if the written word says, do not be mismated with unbelievers, you don't pray about it. You just obey it. Yeah. Right. If yeah, you yeah. If you pray, 
about something that's already been clearly revealed, you're opening yourself up to deception. Mm -hmm. All right, probably time for one more question. Does the Bible teach that believers have guardian angels? If yes, does the Bible say why? It does talk about the the children, their angels in heaven. Holding my face. Holding my face. Be careful how you treat kids because their angels in heaven continually behold the face of our Father. Yeah, Mm. I... The problem is, uh, and I believe what it says there, so there's something going on there. But to the extent that we we put it forward in movies and, you know, it's a wonderful life and things like that, I don't see any evidence of that. I don't know how to, to manage that. Do I believe there are angels here? Yes. Do I believe there are angels that, that look like ordinary people? Yes. Do I believe I need to treat everyone properly? Yes. But whether or not I know specifically if that's an angel and he's here to guard me is a different matter. Do you pray to those angels? No. No. Do you try to communicate with the angels? No. No. You can pray for God send me your angels to protect me. That's fine. But some kind of new age people can be mm. into praying to their angel. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I remain terribly excited for your forthcoming work on yeah. the paranormal, Tom Parrish. <laughs> when is that going to be done, Tom? <laughs> yeah. Soon. Very soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the new master's class, right? It is, indeed. It is, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that. And, and Bill, all... we just have to revisit one thing quickly about the disciples part of it. We were, I just want you to know we were able to name nine disciples over the break, and then we got to ten because of Rosie. Rosie got us to ten, but we didn't get to all twelve. Yeah, and then the problem was is we couldn't remember the nine we named after we named them. <laughs> so there was no way of getting to the last two. Yeah, yeah. However, by next <laughs> week, we will have memorized we all will, Absolutely, for yeah. sure. It's a very strong squad. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Have, a, have a great day. Yep, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, I invited my friend Jeffrey to come back uh, for a little addendum as we have been doing this in the beginning series. We have lots of questions that have come up and we want to make sure we're addressing the questions along the way uh, and, and because I want the teaching hour to be reserved for the teaching hour. So I thought maybe we can take a little extra time and he said yes, he could come on today. So he's going to be my next guest and we're going to talk about uh, in the beginning and maybe if you've got questions, you can text them over. And then after that, we're going to talk to Paul White, Dr. Paul White. He's written a book with Dr. Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas called Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.